I am Caroline Roth, and you are listening to Spirit of the Dawn, Podcast 13. Today, we'll be exploring secret medicines from your garden with author and herbalist Ellen Everett Hopman. Every single day since whence I wake, I feel the same. Somehow I have changed. Could do the people of the street. Yeah, made me feel it. Somehow life is sweeter every day. Somehow life is sweeter every day. Hey, uh, you've gotta find a time to change. Gotta find the time to find this time to embrace the colors, fine lines and shades. It makes this place, it makes this place great. I'll embrace the change. Whoa, 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 I'll embrace the change. Whoa, whoa. From beautiful Ashland, Oregon, I am Pleiadian Emissary of Light, Caroline Ra. Thank you all for joining me today. Welcome to Spirit of the Dawn. There comes a moment in each of our lives when we uncover a special world that lights us up, something that will then direct the course of the rest of our lives. When my guest today, Ellen Everett Hopman, recognized her deep connection with the realm of plants, she devoted her life to honoring, teaching, and enjoying their healing wisdom and their magic. Her latest release, Secret Medicines from Your Garden, Plants for Healing, Spirituality, and Magic, is a comprehensive guide to connecting and working with the plants that surround us. Drawing on her extensive experience and knowledge, Ellen shares remedies and traditions that take us through the seasons and through many cultures. Ellen has been a teacher of herbalism since 1983 and a druidic initiate since 1984. She is a founding member of the Order of the White Oak and Archdruidess of the Druid Clan of Dana and a member of the Great Council of Mages and Sages. Ellen is the author of numerous books, including A Druid's Herbal for the Sacred Earth Year, and a delightful book that I enjoyed exploring with my children when they were little, Walking the World in Wonder, a Children's Herbal. I am delighted to welcome to Spirit of the Dawn, Ellen Everett Hopman. Ellen, thank you so much for joining with us today. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. It's a pleasure. Uh- Happy spring. <laughs> oh, happy spring to you. I love it. There's still snow in the mountains where we are. Same here. In fact, <laughs> I just went to the mailbox uh, this afternoon, and all along the edges of the road, there's still piles of snow. But uh, the snow is pretty much gone from the garden and the woods, except for little little piles next to the trees. But otherwise, the crocuses are up, the daffodils are up, although they're not blooming yet. We're probably about a month ahead of you here in Ashland, Oregon, uh, a month of where you are in Massachusetts, because our daffodils are in full bloom and all the trees are blossoming. All the cherry trees blossomed and the pears are now blossoming, so it's quite beautiful. Oh, wow. Yeah, that won't happen here for another month or two. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Ellen, I really enjoy the story of how you were studying for your doctorate in Italy and wandered into a whole new world. Can you share with us how you awaken to your connection with the plants? Well, there's a whole chapter in the book devoted to this, so there's a lot more detail. But basically what happened was I was studying art history at Temple University in Philadelphia, and I was a straight-A student, and I was a TA, you know, a teaching assistant. 
I was getting my master's, and they just basically said to me one day, you're going to Rome. <laughs> and I said, I had no desire to go to Rome. I wanted to study American photography, but they said, nope, you're going to study Renaissance art, and you're going to go to Rome. So <laughs> I had this scholarship, so I, I said, okay, I'm going to Rome. So I went there. I was in Italy for six months. I was studying at the Vatican Library and you know, going to all the museums and all that and writing my thesis. At one point, I wanted to, to look at the frescoes uh, by Giotto of St. Francis, which are, were in the cathedral in Assisi, and I, I don't know what condition those frescoes are in now because they had a really bad earthquake after that, but I went to Assisi to look at the frescoes. I was in the cathedral, and I, the, the frescoes are go around the the top of the the wall all around the cathedral and there's a lot of gold paint and I looked at that and I just knew it was wrong you know something was off because I knew enough about St. Francis to know that gold leaf you know wasn't really didn't really jive with who he was so I was looking for someone uh, to talk to about this and I saw this Franciscan priest this little priest he was standing in the doorway and I walked up to him and I said I'd really like to know more about the real St. Francis you know how he actually lived and you know these frescoes don't seem to to really be that and he said go to San Maceo and I said what is San Maceo and he said don't ask any questions just go and he pointed down the hill so I had no idea what it was but I you know I figured I was under orders and I marched down the hill and there was a little wooden sign hand painted that said San Maceo off to the right and I there I remember there's a very muddy little path and these bushes and I went through and I came out into this medieval farmyard basically it was uh, two sheep folds and a bunch of students lying on the grass and they they said oh have you come here to live and I said I don't know what is this place and they said uh, it was a Franciscan community so I stayed for a few days and then went back to Rome, packed up all my stuff, came back, and the community had no hot water. It was just cold water. The mattresses were straw. One sheepfold was for the women to sleep in. There was another sheepfold for the men to sleep in. There were ducks and chickens wandering around at will in and out of the buildings. Bread was being baked in a big stone oven. There were uh, fields for vegetables. We went to Mass twice a day. Wednesdays, uh, we were supposed to fast, not have anything. You could have water and you could have herbal tea. That was it. And you were supposed to take off and walk and have no plan. It was called a day in the wilderness, you know, or wandering in the desert. You were supposed to just take off. So one day I took off and I just started climbing up this hill and I just kept walking, and I got above the tree line, and it was Mount Subasio, which is a mountain where St. Francis used to hang out. And I got to the top of the mountain, and there was this huge storm that came in. It was thunder, lightning, and snow. And there was nothing up there except this one little tiny pine tree, so I did the worst possible thing, and I wrapped myself around the tree and <laughs> waited out the storm. Came back down the hill with snow on my shoulders, singing at the top of my lungs because I was full of energy. Down at the bottom of the hill, 
across the street from San Maceo is San Damiano, which is the church that St. Francis built for St. Clair. And then there's on the opposite side from San Damiano is this little chapel that St. Francis built with his own hands, which is uh, pre-Gothic, so it didn't have the stained glass windows and all that. It was very dark in there. So I went into the little chapel, and I, I was all alone in there. I sat down in the dark, and I basically heard this voice, and it said, everything you've been doing up until now was for status and intellect and to please your parents. You're supposed to be working with plants. And it was a voice that I heard coming from inside of me and outside of me at the same time. It's like all around me. And I knew that it was right. I knew that it was absolutely correct because I had been working in the libraries. And then the minute I would get outside, you know, if I was next to an olive tree or if I was in the grass or next to a flower, I felt this incredible kinship with all of the plants, you know, and I knew it was right. And so I basically spent the next few years, I sold all my possessions. I went to uh, Findhorn in Scotland to study flower essence counseling. Um, and I worked in the gardens there. I spent a whole summer there. I studied with William Lassassier in New York City, who was my main herb teacher. I was an apprentice with him for five months. And then I started teaching. And soon after that, I started writing, and I've been doing it ever since. Oh, that's a great story. Thank you for sharing that. When you were at Findhorn, did you learn to start communicating with the plants? Well, anybody who's been to Findhorn, the first thing you do is you have this thing called an experience week, and everybody does this. And in your experience week, one of the things they teach you is channeling. Mm -hmm. And so you channel your own higher self, and I mean, you just get in touch with your own psychic abilities. I don't know if that's the right word, but basically you tune into what's out there. I mean, everybody can do it. That's my point. It, there's nothing special about it. Absolutely everybody can do it. You just have to allow yourself to do it. You know, you open yourself to all that is, and you get messages. Yeah, I think everyone gets kind of different messages in a different way. I, I learned to touch a plant in tone and then we'd talk and go on a journey together it was it's fun that was my style well yeah everybody has a different major ability like some people are more kinesthetic so they touch something and they get messages other people are more audio so they will hear messages i'm very visual i guess because i would see i would get pictures and then I would have to interpret the pictures to make a story. One of the themes that runs through your life is living and working with the seasons. What's the importance of this, and how can we cultivate this way of life? Well, I live in the woods, <laughs> so it's, there's no way I cannot work with the seasons. If I look out any window or out the kitchen door or out the front door, I mean, I'm immediately surrounded by the animals, by the plants. So I haven't lived in a city for over 30 years. Even in a city, you can get a sense of the seasons passing by, by tuning into what the trees are doing and what the light is doing. But when you live in the country, it's pretty inescapable because right now what's happening is the plants are just starting to come up. 
and the sap is starting to rise. So right now, where I am, maple sugaring is going on. And later this week, it's going to be in the 60s, which means we're going to be in the mud season. Yay. (laughs) So the ground, everything turns to mud, you know. I guess pretty soon, in about a month, when the leaves are finally coming out, because so far it's just buds, we don't have any leaves yet. But once the leaves are finally coming out, then that will tell me that I can go out and dig up a sassafras root and make a spring tonic. That's my year. It's it's just, and you have to work with each plant in its season. If you miss that that week window or that two week window, you've you've missed it. Whether it's the berries being ripe at a certain time or um, certain roots being ready, you have like right now it's sprouts. It's about sprouts. It's about buds and sap, flowing sap. So you work with what's happening. Totally. I understand. Yeah. It's like the burdock around our house is already past when you'd want to use the root because it's moved on. It's past that already. So Exactly. Once it's in the second year and it starts putting out leaves, it's already too late. Yeah. It's interesting. I'm real familiar with the doctrine of signatures, and I find it fascinating. Could you share with uh, our listeners what the doctrine of signatures is? Well, that's also a big subject, and I do have a big chapter. The book is called Secret Medicines from Your Garden, and it's out now. It, it, um, it came out around mid-February, I think, but you can get it Amazon, Barnes & Noble, at your local bookstore, whatever, it's everywhere now. Secret medicines from your garden. But, oh, the doctrine of signatures, yeah. No, that's okay. Um, okay, so what I tell my students, this is how I introduce it. I say uh, it wasn't until about maybe 100, 150 years ago that most people could read and write. Before that, nobody could read and write except for very highly trained clergy, monks, maybe some members of the aristocracy, Back in the Middle Ages, if you had five books, that was a library. It's a really big deal. Books were the equivalent of of a high-end computer. They were very high-tech, and only very well-trained, esoteric people knew how to read. How do you pass on herbal wisdom when you can't go to the shelf and look something up, and you can't Google it, and you can't go to a bookstore and buy a book, and... You can't go to a library because there is no library. So what, how do you do this? So there were two ways. One way was to create stories. The first Rowan tree. How did the first Rowan tree happen? Well, this guy went to the land of fairy and he stayed there. What for him felt like a day, but to everybody else it felt like seven years. And he knew he was wise and he knew not to eat anything there, but he put some berries in his pocket. And when he came back from the land of fairy, Tirnano, he emptied his pockets and these red berries fell out and they landed on the ground. And that's how the first Rowland trees came to Ireland. So, okay, so what does that tell you? That tells you that this is a very special tree, that the berries are important, and you've got to know about this tree. You know, it belongs to the land of fairy. And everybody who ate the berries ever after was healthy, wealthy, and wise. What does that mean? The berries actually have more vitamin C than lemon. 
And people, you know, the, in the highlands of Scotland, that was their medicine. They made a syrup with the rowan berries and apples and honey. So it had more vitamin C than lemon. And if somebody had bronchitis or the flu or a cold, that's what they got. And they noticed that the people that ate the berries survived. The people that didn't eat the berries didn't live very long. So that must be a very special tree. So that's one way to pass down the information. So anytime you notice that a culture has a sacred tree or any kind of a sacred plant, that means that that particular plant has profound practical applications for that culture, you know, for food, for medicine, you know, something very practical. So that's one way. The other way was something called the Doctrine of Signatures, which was developed in the Middle Ages, again, for people who couldn't read. So you looked at a plant, and you could tell by the color of the plant, by the shape of the leaf, by what kind of roots it had. Was it growing in the shade? Was it growing in the sun? That would tell you exactly what part of the human body it was for. So things that grew in swampy areas were good for wet conditions, you know, sweating, urinary tract, kidneys, because the swamps are the wet areas of the earth, which correspond to the wet areas of the body. Things that grew in bogs were good for the bowels, like iris root, you know, things like that. Things that grew in the sun would bring heat into the body. Things that grew in the shade, like peppermint, things like that would be cooling to the body. I mean, every plant has its signatures. So there's quite a lot to it. But I have a huge, a big chapter in there. Oh, the book's Um, amazing. It's totally amazing. It's, I couldn't put it down when I received it. I just actually could not put the book down. It had all the information I was looking for. A lot of it is what I teach. That's, that's the class that I teach. I have this six month course that I teach every year here in Massachusetts. And what I finally decided to just take everything almost everything, not everything, but, you know, a lot of what was in, in the six-month course, and I put it in the book. That's really neat. It's a beautiful book. It has some beautiful color plates also in it, and so much information. It goes into so many different areas, some areas which I really never knew about. You have a chapter on animal spirit medicine with the different animals. Is that a Native American tradition? Yes, it is. I learned it originally from Matthew Wood, and it's an Ojibwa uh, tradition, and I gather that he learned it from an Ojibwa teacher. Like the Doctrine of Signatures, it was just another way of classifying plants and passing down the information. You know, for example, snake medicine. I mean, I've been able to identify some snake medicines on my own, just because I knew what a snake medicine was. A snake medicine is an herb that's going to go into your body and clear out poisons, whether it's from a blood infection or a snake bite, you know, something like that. I mean, echinacea would be a a good example. So that would be called a snake medicine, you know. A bear medicine would be more oriented to the, the stomach and the digestive tract. OSHA... You probably know OSHA. It's called bear medicine. That's one of the names of it because that's what the bears eat before they hibernate. And it's also what they eat when they come out of hibernation. And it, what it does is it 
And I, I've actually eaten it before going into a, a fast and, and when coming out of a fast. That's very traditional Ojibwe thing to do. But OSHA is becoming endangered now because of over-harvesting. So that's very bad for the bears. It's just another plant classification system. Right, right. It's absolutely fascinating. Do we have hedgerows in America? Well, if people build them, yes. It's it's a very, very European thing, but um, I, I gather that Americans are doing it. You usually see them in Europe. Basically what a hedgerow is, you take a plant, and it could be a tree or it could be a, a flower, it could be something like lavender even. You make a raised mound. It's kind of like a low wall of dirt, and then you lean uh, rocks against the base so that it doesn't collapse, you know, because if you just have a mound of dirt and it rains, the whole thing's going to melt, you know. So you put, and it also keeps animals from burrowing into it. So you line it with flat rocks, usually, and then you plant your different bushes or trees or herbs, and you make a row. It's a hedge, but it's it's a consciously created hedge. So what I did in the book was I listed hedge plants. I looked for plants that would have flowers in the spring and then fruits in the fall because that way they're beautiful all the time and that yeah. would be medicinal and or edible. That's what I was looking for. And, and then I also list the magical properties. That sounds like a really fun project for someone to work on, especially it's springtime right now when we're talking. It's the time when people are starting to get out and work in their gardens and plan their new new adventure in the gardens. So that sounds really exciting. I think I actually might try that this year and create that. Yeah, if you're making a ritual space or a space to meditate, it's nice to very consciously pick the plants and know what their spiritual and magical properties are. And have them be medicinal and edible at the same time. What, you know? Right. And beautiful also in all different ways. Trees are our teachers if we're open to listen. And you have a very special connection with oak trees. Can you talk about oak trees in your life? Another big subject. <laughs> all these things are, are big subjects. I have another book out. It's called A Druid's Herbal of Sacred Tree Medicine. And... I have an entire chapter devoted to oak in there. Okay. Yeah, that book is organized around the ancient Irish tree alphabet, which predates the Roman alphabet. And the ancient Irish tree alphabet, all the letters are trees. So instead of A, B, C, D, E, F, G, you know, it's Rowan, Oak, Willow. Those are the letters that they wrote with. And so the books is the ancient tree alphabet and then I go into the medicinal and the spiritual and it's all based on actual tradition. I didn't make any of this up. It's all traditional stuff. But I think of oak trees, it's practically a sermon. For a druid, an oak tree is kind of the equivalent of what a cross would be for a Christian or an Ankh for an Egyptian practitioner or a Star of David, you know, for a Jew. We carry acorns in our pockets to remind us of the oaks. That's how important they are. So what is an oak? An oak, the roots go down as deep as the tree is tall. So first of all, it's a symbol of balance, and it's a way of being in the world where you're rooted 
you're fully rooted, but you still have your head in the clouds at the same time. So you're not spaced out. You're not airy-fairy, as they used to say. You're, you're grounded, but you have your head in the clouds. And oak trees, they offer food in the form of acorns. They offer shelter. We make most of our houses are made of oak and have been for thousands of years. They offer warmth. They're fabulous firewood. Ash is a little hotter. You know, up north in Scandinavia, it was ash. In the middle of Europe, it was oak. They offer medicine. The leaves and the bark are medicinal. And so that's the aspiration of a druid is to live like that, to be grounded and prosperous enough so that you can feed the people, heal the people, shelter the people. That's what an oak is. It's like a sermon. They also have this ability to attract lightning. Both ash and oak do this. They attract lightning because they tend to be the tallest trees in the forest. And at the same time, they don't die. They don't get blasted from it. They ground the lightning because they're so well-grounded in the earth. So what that symbolizes is the ability to have a relationship with the heavens, with the celestial realms, with the gods and goddesses, to have that divine inspiration and to have that come into you and survive and then keep feeding the people. Wow, that was wonderful. When I grew up on Long Island in New York, right outside my bedroom, right outside was a beautiful oak tree that I shared the space with and we grew up together. Here in Ashland, I'm surrounded by giant sequoias that were planted at one point. There's an absolutely gorgeous one right outside the window where, I'm, where I am. And I talk to them and they're beautiful and I love them. Can you give us some insight into giant sequoias? Yeah, I I actually been blessed to hang out with some Muir Woods and uh, some other places. And when I was at Muir Woods, I went inside one of the trees. I know you're not supposed to do that, but I did. I stuck <laughs> in there and I lay down inside the tree. And you know, as usually happens, I started getting pictures. And the trees. That's how the trees talk to me. They they I get images, right? So what the sequoia was telling me, and I hope people take this seriously and listen, the sequoia was showing me the earth and that the sequoias, one of their jobs is to be like an antenna for the earth. So it's a way for our earth to be in connection with certain star systems. And when we cut down a sequoia, they're still cutting them. I just can't believe it. But when you cut one down... You cut the earth off from the ability to listen to the star nations. One of your teachers was, I'm going to try to say his name correctly, William Le Sassier? That's right. Wonderful. And I've never heard of the triangle system. And I know that he taught that to you. Can you explain that? Because I really didn't understand it completely. Well. <laughs> Another big subject. <laughs> yeah, I know. Well, explaining it verbally is, is going to be a little difficult. But again, what happened was I was at the Philo School of Herbal Energetics, which is right outside of Mendocino. And I was staying with Mary Pat Palmer, who's the herbalist who runs the Philo School. And Matthew Wood called on the phone. So I said, oh, let me say hi to Matt. And we were talking. And Matt asked,
asked me, you know, what was I teaching these days? And I said, well, I'm teaching the triangle system. He said, you are? And I said, well, yeah, I've been teaching it for 30 years, you know. And he said, oh, my God. He said, there's only two or three people in the country who even know this. And I said, you've got to be kidding me because, you know, I've been churning out students for 30 years. I just assumed that people were going out there and teaching it. But no, apparently there's only two or three people in the whole country. So Matt said, Alan, he said, you have to write a book before it's too late. And that's how this book actually happened, because Matt Matt told me I had to write it. So, you know, being me, I'm always writing, so I, I went ahead and wrote it. You know, and that's, what, that's exactly how it happened, but uh, it's kind of hard to explain. I mean, if you read the chapter carefully and you just go step by step, I have a drawing for every step. So it literally starts, you draw a triangle, and then within that triangle, you draw an upside-down inverted triangle. The inverted triangle is the center of gravity of the illness. For example, if somebody had emphysema, you might put the lungs in the center. You know, or if their heart was actually worse than their lungs, you would put the heart in the center. You know, whatever the center of gravity is, that goes in the middle. And then you have three other systems, one at the top, one on the left, and one on the right, three smaller triangles. And each of those triangles represents concomitant symptoms. So again, if this person had emphysema, maybe you have the lungs in the middle. One of the triangles would be the heart. Another triangle, what would be the issue? I don't know, maybe they, maybe they had digestive problems, so maybe you would put the stomach or the bowels uh, in another triangle. Maybe they had dry skin, so you put the skin in another triangle. And I don't know if any of this is making sense, explaining it verbally. (laughs) I'm looking at pictures. I have an advantage. I've got the book with me. and No, but I'm understanding it more. So these are, and then we're going to add plants to this, correct? The herbs? Well, each triangle has a builder, a cleanser, and a tonic. An 18-part formula, so you would have a builder, a cleanser, and a tonic for the skin, a builder, a cleanser, and a tonic for the heart, a builder, cleanser, and tonic for the bowels, and in the middle, you have the, well, it's three parts builder, three parts cleanser, three parts tonic for the lungs, which is the center of gravity of the illness. Wow, I, I actually understand it. This is fascinating. Yeah, well, the chapter breaks it down, and then there's 40 pages or 44 pages of lists of plants saying whether it's a builder, a cleanser, or a tonic for each organ system. Yeah, it's very comprehensive. Yeah. We are talking with Ellen Everett Hopman, and she has written the amazing book, Secret Medicines from Your Garden, Plants for Healing, Spirituality, and Magic, which is available now at Amazon.com and other places too, right, Ellen? Yeah, all the usual places. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Barnes & Noble, independent bookstores. Also my website, which is EllenEverettHopman.com. That's right, and that's Everett is E-V-E-R-T, and Hopman is with one P, one P. O-P-M-A-N, yeah. (laughs) That's fascinating. The builders, the cleaners, and the tonics, and I think I've actually understand things more. You're an amazing teacher, and how can people work with you? Are you still teaching that class? 
Yes, it's well, it's a six-month course, which I teach in western Massachusetts, so if people are in Oregon, it's going to be a little hard, but um, every once in a while I get invited to teach in California. This year, that hasn't happened yet, but if you go to my website, you can, you know, you can sort of stay in touch or you can invite me out <laughs> to teach. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I am going to be teaching yeah. in New Hampshire um, in June or July, I forget, I'm doing a tree intensive where I'm going to be doing herbal and spiritual uses of trees. That's in New Hampshire. But yeah, if you just go to my website, ellenevertthopman.com, and I have a blog there. Every month I post the blog, and I always list the workshops that are coming up and, and the new books. Yeah, you have a new book coming out. I believe it's Legacy of Druids, Conversations with Druid Leaders of Britain, the USA, and Canada, Past and Present. Correct. And I got that one right. Oh, well, that sounds fascinating. How did you collect all that information? Well, it was over 20 years ago now that what happened was my father passed away and I had a very small inheritance and I was already a Druid initiate. I was teaching Druids. You know, I've been initiating and teaching Druids since about 1990. And I thought, well, if I'm going to be teaching Druids, I really need to uh, meet the Druids on the other side of the pond, you know, in Britain and Ireland and places like that. So I went over there, interviewed people. I mean, every time I met somebody that I thought was interesting, I interviewed them. And a lot of them were the founders and the heads of the various Druid orders at the time. And some of them have since passed over, so it was really good that I was able to talk to them. And I basically sat on the interviews for about 20 years. I didn't do anything with it. And then one day, I just had this urgent, again, this thought, oh my God, you better write the book before it's too late. You know, so I quickly, I well, I had everything on a floppy disk, which I was not able to access. Luckily, I had hand-typed everything, so I scanned all the hand-typed interviews and made it into a PDF. I sent it to Philip Cargom, who is the head of Obad in England, uh, Order of Bards, Ovates, and Druids, and I said, Philip, what do I do with this? And he said, send it over to Moon Books. So I sent it to Moon Books. This is a publisher in England. They took one look at it, and within 24 hours, they accepted it. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, I don't know what I was what I was waiting for, but apparently I don't know. Anyway, so <laughs> it's coming out uh, in just a few weeks. It'll, but I already have some copies that you can order from me through my website, but it will it can be pre-ordered on Amazon and I think Barnes and Noble, but I know on Amazon. Um uh, and then it's officially coming out um end of April. And that's April 2016. That's fantastic. Yeah. That is wonderful. Before we we close, I really want to talk about Walking the World in Wonder, which I, uh, when I raised my kids, we had two acres in a wetlands, and we spent a lot of time outside in the woods, and uh, I loved this book, and it was so enjoyable. Did you enjoy writing this book? Yeah, that was quite a while ago. But I do want to say that that book is a great favorite of the homeschoolers, Walking the World in Wonder at Children's Herbal. What happened was I was asked by a camp, they said, can you come up with a project for kids involving plants? So I thought about it, 
And I was trying to come up with something simple because it was for little kids. So I went out in the backyard and I picked dandelions and maple leaves and, you know, all kinds of different things. And I simply ran them through the Xerox machine. And I had, um, it was like a little game, you know, it was a little life list. And everything was listed and you were supposed to check it off every time you found one. So the first page was, you know, dandelion. You know, and then I talked about what it was good for. And then I said, can you find me? And then they would check it off, right? So that game, it went over very well. And I said, well, gee whiz, I might as well make a book out of it, you know. And Stephen Foster, uh, Inner Traditions Hiredster, who's this fabulous photographer, and he came up with beautiful photographs. And the book is designed for parents and teachers to work with kids to teach them the basics of medicinal plants, and the parents and teachers will learn about it too. And there's a smiley face if you can eat the plant. There's a frowny face if you can't. And if it's not edible, I tried to do suggestions like make a collage, you know, things like that. But as I said, there's 75 different projects in there. I think that's why the homeschoolers really like it, because the teacher works with the child and they learn together, or you don't have to know anything. In other words, it takes you through it. So really simple things, you know, simple teas or making herbal honey, you know, things like that. I did use it as a homeschooling parent. My kids were homeschooling at that time on in Connecticut. And it, it gave us fun activities, and I think it made the kids more aware of the seasons and what was out there in the, in oh, yeah, the yard. It's another book that's divided up by the seasons. So the herbs of spring, the herbs of summer, herbs of fall, herbs of winter. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it also teaches how the year starts in October. It with uh, the holiday we call Halloween, and uh, I really like that a lot. That was kind of interesting. Um, what do you call Halloween, though? Samhain. Okay. How do you say that again, please? Samhain. Samhain. Yeah, and that's when the season starts. It really starts when the the seeds from the previous year are now back into the ground, and and then we have the winter and then the spring. It's kind of beautiful, huh? Well, everything starts in the dark. You know, a baby yeah. starts in the dark, in the dark of the belly. A plant starts in the dark of the earth. Everything starts in the dark. That's something our culture has forgotten, you know. In ancient times, the day began in, in the evening. That's when the day began. So the beginning, oh, wow. Yeah. yeah the, right. So a festival went from the evening. Mm-hmm of one day to the evening of the next day. That was the festival. And in the Jewish tradition also. Well, there you it, go. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it would be Erev, you know, the, the time before, the evening before would be the beginning of a holiday, and now I understand why. That's really interesting. Well, Ellen, you are absolutely fascinating. We have had a delightful time today speaking with Ellen Everett Hopman, author of many books, including her latest release, Secret Medicines from Your Garden, Plants for Healing, Spirituality, and Magic. I highly recommend visiting EllenEverettHopman.com to learn more about Ellen and her work. I'm hoping you can share some closing words of wisdom with us. What I keep thinking about is just 
we have to be in relationship with the earth. It's like what you were talking about, paying attention to the seasons. Pay attention. Pay attention to what's happening to the plants around you, to the animals around you, to the water. You know, it's serious. We we really can't play around anymore. We have to really pay attention. And if we notice that something is going on that's causing pain or causing things to die or to be sick, get on the phone, call your legislators, start petitions, do things. We have to get very active. Thank you, Ellen. I'm looking forward to having you back on the show because we never even got to talk about bees at all, and there's so much more to discuss. Would you come back sometime? I'd really love that. Of course. I would love to. Thank you. That would be great. Thank you so deeply, Ellen, for joining us today on Spirit of the Dawn. I wish to express deep gratitude to Brian, Zach, and Synergy for the use of their song, Embrace the Change. I thank all of you for joining with us today and invite you to visit spiritofthedawn.com for more inspirational interviews. Sending love from my home to yours, I am the Adian Emissary of Light, Caroline Ross.